1529, Philip of Hesse, a German prince, felt that it was essential to forge some kind of unity among the different leaders of the Protestant Reformation because of the intense pressure of some of the Catholic princes in Germany surrounding him. So he called together a meeting of all the leaders of the Reformation to his castle in Marburg to try to talk out differences that existed between them. The major issue that divided the leaders of the Reformation was the issue of the nature and meaning of the Lord's Supper. They had great differences of opinion, and they held their opinions very firmly, very strongly. They met together for a number of days, but could not come to an agreement over their beliefs about the Lord's Supper. The Roman Catholics had held for many years that the, what is called the doctrine of transubstantiation, namely that the bread and wine are transformed into the actual substance of the body and blood of Christ, though outwardly they retain their appearance as bread and wine. Luther held the belief that's called consubstantiation, which is that Christ is that the substance is not transformed into Christ's body and blood, but Christ's body and blood are in, with, under, and through, Luther said, the elements of the bread and wine. The leaders of the Reformation from Strasbourg, headed by Martin Bucer, who later influenced John Calvin, held a view called the real presence view. They said that Christ is really present in the Lord's Supper in a unique way in which he's not present in our services together as Christians at any other time. Ulrich Zwingli held the view that was called the memorial view. And he said, no, but the Lord's Supper is simply a memorial of what Christ has done. He said that he is really present there, but not in any unique sense. He's always present with us. And they debated these views, and for 450 years since that time, theologians have continued to debate these views and disagree. In the meantime, many of us as laymen come to church, we celebrate the Lord's Supper faithfully, weekly, or monthly, or quarterly, or annually, depending upon what church we're in, sometimes without a full comprehension as to what we're doing. For some, I'm sure that some of you came in and saw the, the table here set for the, for the Lord's Supper, and your first response was, oh no, not that again. I always feel so awkward and uncomfortable. I never know what to think or what to feel. I wish we just didn't have to go through with it. Others of you look and you're excited, but you say, well, I know it's good, but I'm not really sure what it's for. The understanding of some is, is like the understanding of baptism from some children I heard about a few months ago. Wilma Jensen shared with me that one time after a baptismal service, she and several friends got together. The adults were all inside their house. And the kids were all outside playing. And one of the adults happened to look out the window and they saw the kids over there gathered around a big mud puddle. And it looked like they were trying to drown one of their friends. They were pushing him down this mud puddle. And so they ran out the door. And they, as soon as they got within hearing distance, they heard one of the kids say, In the name of the Father and of the Son, and in the hole you go. For some of us, I'm afraid our understanding of the Lord's Supper is, is uh, somewhat similar to that. Well, fortunately for us, the Apostle Paul clears up the matter in 1 Corinthians 11 
And this teaching here is very, uh, is very clear as to what the purpose of the supper is. He tells us, as a matter of fact, that there are three purposes of the Lord's Supper. One major one and two supplementary ones. In verses 17 to 22, he says that the Lord's Supper provides a, a time of expressing the unity that we have in Christ as brothers and sisters. Then verses 23 to 26, he says that the Lord's Supper is a memorial service. It's a time of remembrance of what Christ has done for us. And then in 27 to 34, he says that the Lord's Supper provides us with an opportunity for self-examination and renewal of our commitment to Christ. Well, first of all, let's read verses 17 to 22. But in giving this instruction, I do not praise you, because you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you. And in part, I believe it. For there must also be factions among you in order that, that, uh, that those who are approved may have become evident among you. Therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in your eating, each one takes his own supper first. And one is hungry and another is drunk. What, do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this I shall not praise you. Paul said that there were divisions among the church. Verse 19, he philosophically accepts that such divisions are, inev are inevitable in a fallen world. And yet he says in spite of that, they do have a beneficial purpose in that they provide a chance for those who are good and mature and spirit-led to, to come to the fore. Nevertheless, such divisions are not good. They're caused by factions within the church. And he rebukes these Corinthians. He says in verse 20, when you come together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper, but your own supper. For in your eating, each one takes his own supper first. And one is hungry and another is drunk. Verse 22, he says, and do you, Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? So some were eating an overabundance and others were going hungry. Those who have not, had nothing were being shamed. Apparently what was happening was something like this. The church would announce next Sunday night we're going to have a love feast that's going to start at 6 o'clock. It was the common practice of the, uh, of the first century church to not simply eat the the bread and the juice together, but a whole meal together. So at six o'clock, all of the rich Christians would show up with their arms filled with the, the plenty of food that they were bringing to, to the celebration of the Lord's Supper. But the slaves and the poor were not their own masters. They couldn't get off work just any old time. So they would straggle in, some at seven, some at eight, nine, even ten o'clock, whenever they finished their chores their obligations to their masters. Well, instead of waiting for them, the rich Christians were digging in. And they were not only eating all the food, but also drinking all the wine. The poor Christians would come to celebrate the Lord's Supper, and they would find that there was not any food left, and the rich were sitting around drunk. The problem is that the church was plagued by individualism and selfishness. Whenever we come together, whether it's to celebrate the Lord's Supper or just for, for our ordinary worship services, 
we were to come to worship God, to be instructed and encourage ourselves, and also to serve one another. But the Corinthians were not doing this. They were coming for the wrong reasons. Just as you and I can also come to church for the wrong reasons. We can come primarily just to see our friends and gossip. We can come to the love feast so that we can find six or eight desserts that we like and stuff ourselves. We can come to church to show off our new clothes and our Easter bonnets to assuage our consciences by putting in our religious bit for the week. The Corinthians themselves were obviously coming for the wrong motives. He says, when you come, in verse 21, and you're eating, each one takes his own supper first. So they would run up to the front of the food line, elbow somebody to get ahead of them, come in and grab all the best food before anybody else had a chance. And they were eating. The rich were coming and eating up all the food before the poor even had a chance to get there. They were coming with the attitude that I want to come to church for my benefit. To heck with everybody else. I'm coming for what I can get out of it. Now, we probably will not be so crass and we probably won't eat up all of the food before the latecomers come at our love feast next week. But we still can come to church Sunday after Sunday with a similar wrong motive. We can come thinking, well, I'm just coming for myself. I want a little kick in the pants uh, from God to kind of boost me up spiritually and help me get through the week. But I don't care about all those other people. I'm just in it for what I can get from me. And if we come to church with that kind of mentality, then we're falling into the same sin that the Corinthians were being plagued with. We need to come with a heart of... Uh, of a servant, with a readiness and willingness to reach out and serve those around us. It might be good for us to ask ourselves, in the last couple of months, how many new people have I met here? Maybe people who are brand new, maybe somebody who's been here 20 years and I've never met them. Or do I always just go to my own circle of friends, people who make me feel good, who are like me, and I feel comfortable with them? Or how many people have I had over to dinner outside of my own little group? in the last couple of months? Or when I go, do I even bother at least just saying hello and shaking hands with those around me? I had three people tell me this last week that they thought our church was cold. Maybe we should just accept that fact and rename ourselves Cold Community Church. <laughs> but I think probably we shouldn't give up quite so easily. There are others who find uh, our congregation very warm. Well, why is it that some find us very cold? Well, I think the reason is because our church is made up of sinners. People like you and me. And we become selfish. We very easily fall into the pattern of simply coming, looking for our friends, talking to them, and ignoring everybody else. But what we need is a, an injection of love so that we can reach out beyond our own circle of friends. Find the person who's lonely or needy, somebody who needs just a, a warm handshake, somebody who needs a, a friend, a word of encouragement, and become more of a loving community. Now, what does all this have to do with the Lord's Supper, you might ask? Well, it has to do with the Lord's Supper because the Lord's Supper is intended to be an expression of our unity as brothers and sisters. Paul says this even more clearly in chapter 10, verse 
verses 16 and 17. Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? Since there is one body, we who are many are one body. Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body. For we all partake of the one bread. We all partake of the one bread because the Lord's Supper is a is an opportunity for expressing the unity that we have as Christians. Let me read for you from a passage I ran across this, this last week and, and studying for, uh, for this. In the whole range of history, there is no more striking contrast than that of the apostolic churches with the heathenism around them. They had shortcomings enough, it is true, and divisions and scandals not a few, for even apostolic times were no golden age of purity and primitive simplicity. Yet we can see that their fullness of life and hope and promise for the future was a new power in the world. Within their own limits, they had solved almost by the way the social problem which baffled Rome and baffles Europe still. They had lifted woman to her rightful place, restored the dignity of labor, abolished beggary, and drawn the sting of slavery. The secret of the revolution is that the selfishness of, class, of race and class was forgotten in the supper of the Lord, and a new basis for society was found in love uh, of the visible image of God in men for whom Christ died. The Corinthian offenders, however, were reviving the selfishness of class, were treating with contumely the image of God visible in their fellow men, and were thus bringing into serious peril the best results of this blessed revolution. Lord's Supper is meant to be an expression of our unity, a breaking down of these class and race and economic differences that, that divide us. And when we come together, we, we must remember that we are all one body in Christ. We are brothers and sisters. The business executive and the factory worker, the PhD and the high school dropout, the junior high boy and the great grandmother, the Chicano and the Anglo, the country hick and the sophisticated snob. We are all one in Christ. And therefore, when we meet together, we need to come with this attitude and then act accordingly. Express this unity in our meeting together. Unfortunately, the Corinthian Christians were failing miserably and making the Lord's Supper a, a parody of what it should have been. In verses 23 to 26, he tells us the second purpose of the Lord's Supper and really that which is the main purpose. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And here he says clearly that the purpose of the Lord's Supper is to be a memorial, a reenacted parable to remind us of what Christ has done. He repeats the words of Christ twice. In verse 24, do this in remembrance of me. Verse 25, do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. There's no thought in Christ's mind was when he instituted this supper of the bread and wine being transformed into something other than they, than they were. 
and of them being conveyors of grace to us. Rather, it's, it is a memorial time. Now, the original uh, Lord's Supper was celebrated by the disciples with Christ at his last supper during Passover week. This week was chosen because the Lord's Supper is to be for us the counterpart of the Old Testament Passover celebration. It's to be which, which uh, itself was a memorial. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, Jesus is our Passover who was sacrificed for us. Let me read from Exodus chapter 12, a couple of verses that explain the significance of the Old Testament Passover. Let me confirm that this is the pattern for our New Testament Passover celebration. Uh, in Exodus 12, verses 25 to 27, Moses says, And it will come about when you enter the land which the Lord will give you, as he has promised, that you shall observe this right. And it will come about when your children will say to you, What does this right mean to you? That you shall say, It is a Passover sacrifice to the Lord, who passed over the houses of the sons of Israel in Egypt, when he smote the Egyptians but spared our homes. It's a memorial time. A time when the children would say, Dad, what in the world are we doing here? What's the meaning of all this? And the father could then explain to his household what God had done for them in the Passover. The New Testament Passover is the same sort of thing. In the Old Testament, the nation of Egypt was under the judgment of God. That judgment was imminent. But for all those who heeded the warning and took the blood of the lamb and applied it to their doorposts, the angel of judgment would pass over those households. That's how it came to be called a Passover. In a similar way for us, our world is under the judgment of God, and that judgment is coming. But God has warned us so that all of us who take the blood of Christ and, and figuratively apply it to our own hearts experience the passing over of judgment from us so that we are removed from that judgment when it comes. And our Passover celebration, the Lord's Supper, is a time to remember this and to proclaim his death, Paul says in verse 26, until he comes. It's a time to remember the significance of that death. Verse 25, uh, Jesus says, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. We realize that his death effects for us the new covenant. Now, the new covenant was a covenant promised in Jeremiah 31. You may want to turn there or just listen. To the nation Israel. Let me read verses 31 to 34. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which, which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make uh, with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. It says this is the covenant which he makes with the house of Judah and the house of Israel. And it will be effected with them. When in the future, according to prophecy, the nation of Israel will turn in mass to God, to Jesus Christ as their Lord. And this covenant will take effect with them. But in the meantime, 
We, as Christians, are benefactors of that covenant by the grace of God. We get to experience some of the provisions of it. And notice what the provisions are. Verse 33. Number one, I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it. We don't, as the people of the Old Testament, have a, a law code standing over our heads, always judging our actions. But instead, we have a law written in our hearts. The Holy Spirit has written it there. And as Paul tells us, furthermore, that Holy Spirit provides the motivation and the ability, the resources to fulfill that law. Secondly, he says, I will be their God and they shall be my people. Because of what Christ has done, we know God personally. He's not just a being who lives up there in the clouds somewhere. But rather, we have a personal knowledge of him, a personal relationship with him. And thirdly, verse 34, I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Our sin is washed away by the blood of Christ. He became our substitute who died in our place, though we deserve death. And therefore, we can stand before God free, no matter how much you've blown it this week, no matter how many bad things you did that you knew were wrong and you went ahead and did them. You can stand before God, cleansed, free of that guilt because of what Jesus Christ has done for you. God says, I will remember their iniquity no more. And the basis of this new covenant is affected by the death of Christ. We can come before God in boldness at any time, clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And it's these things that we remember as we celebrate the Lord's Supper together. We have our minds renewed in these great truths which are foundational for our lives. And then our hearts are renewed in gratitude towards God and commitment to Him as the Lord who bought us. And then in verses 27 to 34, Paul tells us a third purpose of the Lord's Supper. He says here that it provides an opportunity for self-examination. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself, if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are sick, are weak and sick, and numbers sleep, our words have died. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we should not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord in order that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that you may not come together for judgment. And the remaining matters I shall arrange when I come. <clears throat> he says in 27 that if we eat wrongly, we are guilty of the body and blood of the Lord and come under God's judgment. And notice he doesn't say that if we are unworthy while we eat, because we're always unworthy. We and ourselves never have the merit sufficient to come before God and say, you should accept me because of what I am. But he says if we eat in an unworthy manner. Now how can we eat in an unworthy manner? What is he thinking about in this context? Well, obviously at least two things which he has discussed already. The Corinthians were eating in an unworthy manner, first of all, because they were failing to express the unity of the body and to live it out. The rich were gorging themselves and not leaving anything for the poor. 
We can eat in an unworthy manner. If we partake of the elements of the Lord's Supper while we have a grudge in our hearts against a brother in Christ, while we have bitterness and resentment against a, a family member, when we despise some other element within the church, we look upon certain people as low-class gums or as high-class snobs. Whenever we have that kind of feeling in our hearts, then we make a parody of the Lord's Supper just as the Corinthians did. Another way that we can eat unworthily, an unworthy manner, is to eat without the proper respect due to our Lord Jesus Christ himself. This is what the Corinthians were doing. He said, when you come together, you're making such a parody of the meal that you're not eating the Lord's Supper any longer. You're just eating your own supper. When we come together, and as you chew the bread, you're thinking about the football game that's going to be on TV and wondering if your team's going to win. Uh, if you can just get 15 games right, you can win the office pool this week. Or you're thinking about the roast you have in the oven. Then you are eating in an unworthy manner and doing just as the Corinthians were doing. Forgetting all about Christ. Forgetting that the purpose of this is to be a time of remembrance. Where we remember what Jesus Christ has done for us. And therefore thank him for it. Well, to avoid becoming guilty of this, Paul says in verse 28, to avoid this, let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Now, this may seem strange in light of uh, 1 Corinthians 4, 3, in which Paul says, it's a small thing for me to be examined by any human court. I don't even examine myself. Well, he has different things in mind in these two passages. In chapter 4, he is recognizing that he never has a total and complete uh, understanding of himself, his motives, his, his attitudes. But here he's saying that in spite of this, we do need to have some sort of self-evaluation. There are two errors into which we can fall as Christians. One is becoming overly introspective. A person who's like this is always worrying, oh, did I do that right? Did I say the right thing? I probably didn't. What did God want me to do? Oh, I probably didn't do it right. I'll probably never do it right. What am I going to do next time? And because he's always so worried about himself and his motives and what he's doing, he never has the freedom to be able to relax and enjoy his Christian life. The other extreme into which we can err is to be totally lacking in self-awareness. We can be full of sin, and yet we're totally oblivious to it. We can go around stepping in people's toes all the time and not even notice they're there. And when somebody confronts us, we say, oh, me, I didn't do that. I would never do anything wrong or bad. And we defend ourselves to the hilt. But we're to avoid these extremes and recognize that we can't know ourselves fully and yet open ourselves up to God. And as we come before him at the Lord's Supper, we have a time for self-examination. We can say, Lord, search my heart. I don't know myself completely, but show me where I'm lacking. Help me to understand and rectify those areas in which I'm falling short of what you want me to be. He says if we fail to do this, <clears throat> verses 29 and 30, then we will be eating and drinking judgment upon ourselves. As a result of this, he said some of them were weak and sick and some had even died. Now the New Testament is very clear that not all sin, not all sickness is caused by sin. 
But it's also very clear that some sickness is caused by sin. And these Corinthians were experiencing judgment in the form of sickness and death upon them because of the, the flippant ways in which they were treating the Lord's Supper. The ways in which they were despising one another, being arrogant towards those who had nothing. But he says there's a way to avoid this. And that's by self-examination and self-judgment of our sins. He says in verses 31 to 32 that God is holy and righteous and therefore sin is going to be judged one way or another. He says there are three ways it can be judged. First of all, verse 31, if we judge ourselves rightly, we should not be judged. If we're honest with ourselves, we say, Lord, I blew it there. I was selfish and I was rebellious and I didn't do what I should. I know it. Forgive me. I don't want to do, to do that. If we pass judgment on our own sin, then he will not judge us. However, a second possibility, verse 32, but when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord. Second possibility is that God himself will judge us. He will discipline us by sickness, by death, by something to make us face up to our sins. The third possibility is that some will be condemned along with the world. He says God disciplines us so that we won't be condemned along with the world. Sin will be judged. And if a person doesn't have faith in Christ, he will, he will come under the judgment of the world. The judgment that we, that we as believers experience right now is not condemnation. Paul says in Romans 8, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And yet there is discipline. But that discipline is so that God won't so God won't have to judge us along with the world. But what Paul wants us to do is judge ourselves. To have a, have a period of open, honest facing of our sins before the Lord. Say, Lord, that was wrong. I'm holding back certain areas of my life. But the way I treated that person is really not right. For I've been rebellious here and insisting in my own way. When we deal with those, and we lay ourselves bare before him. This morning we want to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. And with the men come forward to prepare for this. And as we do, we want to fulfill each of these purposes. We want this to be a time of the expression of the unity that exists among us as brothers and sisters of Christ in Christ. We want this to be a time of, of remembrance of what Christ has done. And of renewal of that in our own lives. And we want to provide an opportunity for self-examination so that you can open yourself up before the Lord, lay yourself bare before Him, and renew your commitment to Him as your Lord.